Good morning, everyone. I was told that um, I just preached too short, and so they asked me to share my testimony before I preached today. So um, I'm glad you all laughed because you all know what I'm talking about. Um, so um, before we get started with this, um, I get to share my testimony of God's grace in my life with you all. I'm really glad I get to do this today. Um, so I'm going to try and keep it as short as possible. I have a short life so far. I'm only 21, so it helps. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were both Christians, are both Christians. Um, I went to church every Sunday, a uh, little brethren church in, in Maryland. Um, I went to a Christian school from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And so you could say that I had a very Christian Influence and upbringing. I heard the gospel a lot. I watched Bible Man on TV when I was four. Um, I watched Veggie Tales, so I heard the gospel in many ways and forms. Um, but likely, as someone who is raised in that environment, I was saved at a very early age. Um, I was saved when I was five. Uh, I don't exactly remember what the conversation was like. But I, I'm pretty sure I did it by myself, and I told my parents later. Um, but I understood my sinfulness, and God worked my heart to bring me to repentance and faith in Christ for my salvation. I knew I needed a Savior. I knew I needed a Savior, um, and his name was Jesus, and he did it on the cross for my sins uh, so long ago. But being in that Christian environment, it's really easy to just kind of go through the motions. And um, I was a really good kid, though. I, I definitely did my best to be a, a goody two-shoes and know-it-all, as I am still today. Um, but I, I, was, I, I did all the right things. I obeyed my parents. I honored them because the Bible said to. And I tried not to sin because the Bible says not to. Because it dishonors the Lord. Um, but naturally, I um, kind of just got passive in my Christian walk. As a kid, I didn't really establish disciplines um, such as prayer and Bible reading, the, the means of grace. Um, I was not discipled at all uh, growing up, which I, I regret. Um, I, I didn't have a lot of discipleship in the home, out of the home. It was very just, I heard the Bible in class, heard the Bible in church, and that was pretty much it. And so naturally, I struggled with a lot of different sins. Um, the Lord must have known I was going to preach because he made them obliterated. Um, it's pride and purity and perfectionism. Uh, those three things really, really were my besetting sins throughout my whole life, and they still are today. Um, but... I kind of lived a, seemingly a double life, I would say. Um, I was definitely saved. I, I know I, I am and I was. But I just struggled a lot. And I would often pray, like, God, I don't understand um, why I keep struggling with things. I don't understand. And um, eventually this came to a head. I had very public, public sin. Um, a lot of people knew about it, and it was very humiliating for me. And um, I, I, I kind of came to a point of I understood that this was God's discipline in my heart because he loves me, and he used this to draw me back to himself and to really make me commit uh, my life to him in a, in, a, in a new way, in a way that I understood that I needed God to change my heart and, make, and allow me to do the things that, that he wants me to do. It was, it was not that I didn't understand that to begin with, but a very poor understanding of grace and how I didn't just need it for after I messed up. I need it for when I wake up in the morning and 
doing this. And for every single second of every day, God's grace sustains me and allows me to do his will. And that was just huge for me, and that's where I actually came to the realization that that is what the Christian life is like. And it's not this perfectionist, do-it-all-yourself, um, and ask for forgiveness later. But, you know, it was amazing. After that, um, that time in, in my junior year in high school, I, was, I just never sinned. It was amazing. I was completely different. Um, I struggled with the same things and uh, to a different degree I had a much deeper desire to read the word I had um, uh, a different a different outlook on um, the Lord and, and his grace to me but I still struggled with a lot of the same things until Cedarville um, after freshman year after being here for a year um, at the beginning of my sophomore year um, which is can't believe it was only two years ago uh, I met my, one of my best friends. Um, he, he's actually, he was actually my best man at my wedding, and we started having discipleship relationships. For the first time in my life, I had a discipleship relationship, and I was being discipled. And we met every week, and we prayed together, we read the scripture together, we shared um, sin together, um, we read books together. And uh, it was really through him and through a couple of other ways that God really changed my life and it was, I kind of was introduced to Reformed theology for the first time. Um, had a very Arminian upbringing. And I had a very new look at the glory of God and his sovereignty. And once again, his grace. And so really just kind of to close it out as we come to more present day. Is that there was really three things that the Lord used to really kind of change my life really. And two years ago at the beginning of my sophomore year first one was that discipleship relationship was just having a friend having someone who cared about my eternal destiny so much that he was willing to confront me on things was willing to challenge me on things and willing to make me think about how i might grow more in christ's likeness number two um right around that time i started in ephesians and i actually really it wasn't really my friend that really introduced me to Reformed theology was really Ephesians. I read Ephesians for myself for the first time, and I was like, wow, man. To the praise of his glorious grace, God saved me. And then lastly, and most near and dear to me, is that he used this church. So I just want to say thank you, each one of you, for showing me what the church is supposed to be like. I, I had never heard expositional preaching before, and I came on Zach's third Sunday. That was my first Sunday here, Zach's third Sunday. And I was like, this is awesome. It was like breathing. It was like drinking water for the first time. And so I just thank you for your fellowship, your encouragement, for what all you mean to me in some way, shape, or form, and for how you've been so integral in my growth. And obviously, like, I still struggle with things today. I got married, so I realized I'm really selfish. Um, <laughs> didn't know that before, but... <laughs> really self-centered. Um, but... The Lord just keeps on using that relationship with Ellie and, and my internship here, my position here, just all of you, just to really grow me. Um, in faithfulness and in Christ-likeness. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And praise God. 
that he has worked so well in my life. But without further ado, we got a sermon to preach, I guess. It says here that I'm supposed to say good morning. So, good morning. <laughs> How fitting it is that after we uh, heard a testimony of God's grace, um, that we would talk about true discipleship of Jesus Christ. So, for your great benefit and joy, I would ask that you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. If you don't have your Bibles with you today, um, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or maybe your neighbor will share with you. And if you're new to navigating the Bible today, the books are in the top corner. The chapters are the big numbers, and the verses are the small ones. So we have the book of Luke today, chapter 11, and verses 14 to 28. And if you would, I would ask that you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word today. Oh. Hear the Word of God from Luke. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking him from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for the marvelous and infinite and matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. That all who are longing to see his face will in this moment this grace receive. Father, we ask for this grace today that we might understand your word and know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, this passage actually kind of gives us a built-in introduction. The introduction starts in 14 and ends in 16. 
And Jesus, for the first time in a long time in Luke so far, is doing a miracle. And in these miracles that he's doing throughout Luke, throughout any of the Gospels, he is showing his divine power. He is revealing who he is in and through his miracles. As John talks about in his gospel, he wrote down the miracles of Jesus so that you might have life and you might believe that he is the Son of God. So when he performs this miracle here of casting out this demon, he is doing just that. Jesus, the Son of God, shows the power of the kingdom of God in miracles. He is showing who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Redeemer who brings salvation through the inauguration of a kingdom, namely that of God. And what we see here is the display of this kingdom, the reality of the kingdom that comes with the coming of the Son of God and how it brings a response to those who see it. It brings about a response to those who see it. And we see two responses here. It says, first, the people marveled, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. And so these negative responses are actually split up into two parts, and that's actually how we're going to order our next two Sundays here. The first one, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He's of the devil. This isn't just a statement of skepticism. This is a statement of true unbelief. As 1 John 2.20, Sue says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And then what about the next people who say, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven? Well, they're acting like Satan. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and that word test and tempt are actually the same word. They're doing the exact, they want to do the exact same thing that Jesus and Satan did. If you really are the Son of God, turn this, loaf, turn this uh, rock into a loaf of bread. They're saying, if you really are the Son of God, give me more signs. I need to see more from you. Give me more than what you've already given. So both of these are statements of unbelieving people. These are blatant unbelievers, antichrists, and those like Satan. There's a big crowd of people, I want you to notice, and all, both of these responses, the marveling of the people and these who are showing doubt and unbelief, come from the same crowd, these same people, the same people who come with maybe the same motives. They want to see the Christ. They've heard about this Jesus guy, and they want to see him. They want to see what he brings to the table. They're all there with the same motives. And I think that for us in this local body of believers, that does not just give us the theological truth that there are two responses to the kingdom of God. Sure, there's two responses. We know that. But I think that it tells us that those who are gathered together to hear the word of God, that we need to check ourselves. I am so thankful to look out and to see all of these people here. I so encourage every week to see the amount of people that come in through these doors and sit in our pews. But even in a group like this who are seemingly close to Christ and close to the things of Christ and close to hearing the word and who seemingly come about with the same motives can very easily be unbelievers, can be doubters, can be antichrists. 
So I want to ask you, when you see Christ in his word, when you hear the word preached, do you marvel? You see that? The, and the, the antithesis to the people in verse 15 is people who marvel, who are amazed at Christ. Is the knee-jerk response of your heart to hearing the word marveling, amazement, adoring Christ? Do you stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and you wonder how he could love you, a sinner condemned unclean, and you sing, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be? Or are you skeptical? Are you like the people that say, oh, he must get his power from the devil himself? I'm not really sure he is who he says he is. Give me another sign, Jesus. I don't believe you. I want something more than what you've already given. Are you a marveler? Or do you not believe? Or put it frankly, as we're going to today, are you a disciple or are you a doubter? I want to be clear that me saying doubter does not mean that Christians can't have doubts. I have doubts. We all struggle with doubts from time to time. But the attitude of incessant doubt and unbelief is what is being described here in the text. Is what I mean by doubter. But that question is going, is going to finish our time in Luke together. In light of the kingdom of God brought by Jesus Christ, are you a disciple or are you a doubter? So the rest of the section in Luke actually is organized into responses to each of these groups. So first, today, Jesus is going to respond to, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, in 16 to 28. And then you notice in verse 29, he says, it seeks for a sign. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. So he's addressing those who say, I need a sign from you. And so fittingly, today, this section is what we're going to cover. And the main idea for today's text is the kingdom of God brings wonder, faithfulness, and blessedness to disciples, but brings present and future judgment on doubters. The kingdom of God brings wonder, faithfulness, and blessedness to disciples, but brings present and future judgment on doubters. This main idea is argued and accomplished through three main points. I'm going to let you guys get that down first. Three main points, the effective kingdom, the cursed doubter, and the blessed disciple. Effective kingdom, cursed doubter, and blessed disciple. So first we have the effective kingdom. In this section, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in this section. But Jesus really confronts those who accuse him of being associated with the devil by giving an argument that leads to an ultimate claim and some implications that come from that. Okay, so... Zooming out where we're going, Jesus is arguing that he not only is just not of the devil, and that he does this by the power of God, that he is the Son of God, but he's arguing, because I am who I am, I bring the kingdom of God, and then these are its effects and implications. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about how he brings the kingdom, how he gives effects, and then the implications that he gives as well. So verse 17 starts his argument. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, 
and divided household falls. It's a given fact. Everyone, both believer and unbeliever, can understand it. There's not supposed to be a lot of theological truth we're supposed to draw from that verse. He's just saying, this is my first premise. Everybody knows this. And perhaps Israelites, they might know this even better than some people from their history. Maybe when Jesus said this, they thought of how the people were divided against Moses and Aaron for taking them up into the wilderness. Shouldn't we have just stayed in Egypt and we're going to die out here? Maybe they thought of their first king, Saul, who ultimately was at war with David and tried to kill his own successor. Maybe they thought of David and how he betrayed one of his finest men, one of his mighty men, by raping his wife and then killing him and then lying to cover it up. Maybe they then thought about David's son, Absalom, who literally tried to form a coup to remove David from the kingdom. He literally split Israel in half against David. That's divide against itself. And maybe then they thought of how the northern and southern kingdoms split because of their sinfulness. And all that constant division, all the way back from Moses and Aaron up until then, led to their exile and their fall. So maybe Israelites knew this better than anybody, that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Second premise, verse 18. Jesus says, And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So Jesus establishes really early here, I'm not doing this by Satan, because it just doesn't make any sense. I don't need to use much else to show you. Satan is smart enough not to destroy his own kingdom, so why would he cast out his own demons? And watch very closely at what he does next. He's, he's done making premises. He's about to ready to make his conclusion and his concluding statement before going into implications. But he uses the last point of him not casting out demons as Beelzebul to launch pad forward. It's like he's the author of logic or something. It's amazing. Verses 19 to 20 seem to be separate. And verse 19 is pretty odd. Talk about these sons who cast out demons and they're going to be your judges. And most people probably interpret this to say that Jesus is taking sort of a jab at his audience. As if he's talking to Pharisees or something, and he's saying, well, even your followers cast out demons, apparently, and so who do they cast out demons by? You say it's God. So if somebody's casting out demons, it can't be one time one thing and one time the other. It doesn't make any sense. But I, I, I have, I'm going to show you why I don't think that's a, the interpretation that I think Jesus is, is actually saying here. I think that the key to understanding this verse is by figuring out who he's referring to when he says, your sons. What group of people is your sons? But first of all, first reason I don't think it's the followers of the Pharisees is that in the logical flow, he wouldn't repeat the same premise twice. I know that's kind of nitpicking, but he already established that he doesn't cast out demons by Satan in the last verse. So why would he just say it the same way again, just to get a, a, a bite in to his audience? Second, to be clear, nowhere in the text does it say that he's talking to Pharisees. It says people. People, people, people. Matthew's account says that he is, but Luke purposely leaves that detail out for a reason. 
So the reference of your sons cannot mean followers of the Pharisees. Which, by the way, Jesus never refers to followers of the Pharisees as sons anyways. He never refers to them as their sons. Third, Jesus says next that if he is casting out demons by the finger of God, that he brings the kingdom of God on them. But if that's true, then whoever these sons are who are casting out demons, don't they also bring the kingdom of God? And I don't think that the followers of Pharisees can do that. Personally not. So who is Jesus referring to? I think the best piece of evidence is the context of Luke. Nowhere in Luke, or in any of the Gospels for that matter, is there ever any mention of other Jewish exorcists. Never. This would be a unique occasion, per se. There's not a big conflict going on between Jesus and Jewish exorcists at this time. So who do we see, though, cast out demons is Jesus himself and his disciples. If you look back at chapter 9, 1 through 2, Jesus sends out the 12 and says this. He called together the 12 and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. And he says the same thing when he sends out the 72 in chapter 10, verse 9. So, who are the sons, one chapter later after both of those verses, who are able to cast out demons? Answer, the disciples. So what is Jesus saying in this verse then? Well, a very helpful, exegetical piece of information is that these two verses are parallel in structure. They have a very similar structure. I'm going to try to show you it in English. They start with the same conjunction. They're translated differently, but it's the same word. They have, if I cast out demons by, and they have a therefore and a then, a connector to get to the last clause of their statements. And so Jesus uses a parallel structure to say the same conclusion twice, but in slightly different ways. And I'll show you. But read verse 20 first, because it's more clear. If it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's pretty straightforward. If I cast out demons by the kingdom of God, doesn't it make sense that I'm bringing the kingdom of God then? But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons, namely the sons of Israel, which are the disciples, how do they do it? Basically, he's saying, you've seen them cast out disciples, cast out demons, the disciples have. You've seen them do it. They're your sons. They are the, the, of the line and lineage of Israel. How do your sons do it? And you can imagine he's speaking to a group of people, and he has the disciples around him, and he almost lifts out his hands and says, what about these? You see them do it. It just happened a chapter ago. They're Israelites. And I always read this and thought, well, Jesus is probably looking for the expected answer of, Oh, no, of course, they didn't do it by demons because they're our kin. They're Israelites. They could never. They're godly people. They would never do that. But Jesus isn't expecting that answer. He's saying, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then my followers, your kinsmen, certainly do as well. Isn't that right? And the only thing that people can say is, I guess, yeah, I guess so. And then Jesus shoots back with, therefore, they'll be your judges. If you are going to reject the Israelites because of their association with me as the Son of Man, then they'll be your judges one day. 
Notice that future tense. They will be your judges. When? Well, the parallel is to verse 20. When the kingdom of God comes. Except it won't be when it's inaugurated. It'll be when it's consummated in the future. And that actually fits with the entire narrative in Luke. Israel, in some sense, as we talked about, is the divided kingdom against itself. It failed as God's son, and Jesus has come as the new Israel, the promised son, who has come to save not just Israel, but both Jew and Gentile alike. He has come with his kingdom, as he says right now, and he will come in fullness in the future. Luke 22, 28 to 30 shows us this. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and this is like so clear. I love it. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and get this, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is saying in these two verses, in two separate ways, I am bringing the kingdom. These 12 with me, they're going to judge you in this kingdom. If I cast out demons by the hand of God, I am the one bringing the kingdom. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. Christ has brought the kingdom. He doesn't just correct the accusation that is of the devil, that he is of the devil. He instead proclaims that he is the one who brings the kingdom of God, and then now he is going to give the implication. But look at this. He brings disciples. His disciples are brought into this kingdom to reign with him. Do you marvel at that? Who are we? Who are we to sit on the throne with Christ and rule with him in the future? We don't deserve that. That's glorious. Do you want another sign? <laughs> or are you, are you amazed at that? He is bringing the kingdom. He's brought the kingdom. We will reign with him. So you might be asking, so what? Why does it matter that Christ brought the kingdom? Well, he immediately goes into the effects and the implications of that in the following verses. The kingdom is an effective kingdom, and he gives three effects and two implications. Three effects and two implications. I wish I would have honestly redid your notes, but we're going to go with it. We'll be impromptu today. Um, So first effect is the defeat of Satan. The defeat of Satan. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Like last time with prayer, Jesus is using an analogy to explain the various effects of the kingdom of God. This analogy there is a strong man who guards his palace, which is representative of Satan. Then there's a stronger man who comes in and overcomes a strong man and defeats him and divides his spoil from the victory. The stronger man is Christ. Luke loved to point out the times that Jesus uses language from Isaiah. So in Luke 4, Jesus, remember, he stands up in the temple as he usually did, and he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he read how he was the fulfillment of it. And so turn your Isaiah ears on when you read Luke, and you'll see that in this verse, he kind of uses the language from Isaiah 53:12, which we read this morning. We read, 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and numbered, was numbered with the transgressors, that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is saying that he is the one who is fulfilling these verses in Isaiah. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who will divide his spoil with the strong, but not in the way that you would think. What does Isaiah 53 say? He is going to get victory over Satan. He is the stronger man. He defeats Satan and and tears down his palace and divides the spoil, not by coming in and physically doing it himself in like this earthly way. No, he does it by, as Isaiah 53 says, by bearing the sins of many, by making intercession with the transgressors, by being numbered among the transgressors himself. Jesus on the cross defeated Satan. Jesus, through his death, through his sacrificial death on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent while he was just bruising Christ's heel, as Genesis 3.15 talks about. Jesus brings a kingdom in his life, yes, in his resurrection, sure. He is crowned for his accomplishment. But the accomplishment was won on the cross where he defeated Satan, where he crushed the head of the serpent. As Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil, and deliver all those who, fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're going to read that again. Through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ defeated Satan, and therefore you are no longer a slave to sin. Christ rules in your life, in your heart, if you are his disciple. Friends, that is such good news. You don't have to give in to sin anymore. You are not led by your sinful desire anymore. Christ rules in your heart. He is Lord over every aspect and thought and desire in your life. And whenever you come across a temptation, the way out the first Corinthians talks about is not personal white knuckling. No, it's God in the person of Christ ruling over your heart. So plead with him. Whenever you face temptation, whenever you're in something, oh, this is so key, that you can remind yourself, Christ rules my life, not this sin. Christ rules my life, not my personal passions and the lust of my flesh. Not, as Ephesians 2 says, the prince of the power of the air anymore. He's done. The stronger man is one. Disciples of Christ, you are not ruled by him. You're ruled by your Lord, by the master of all things, by Jesus Christ himself. He has taken over your life. So marvel at him. Cherish him. Love him. But the last verse of Be Thou My Vision says, High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys. O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision. Who? O ruler of all. Be my vision.
That's your song, Christian. So sing it out to him in marvel and wonder and praise and amazement and love. To him who won the victory for you. And second, we have the salvation of God's people and a future reign with him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. An inheritance, the spoil of Christ's victory over Satan has been won for you, has been divided to you through Christ's death. 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we read it a while ago. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance that is not out there and we have to keep on grabbing at it. No, but it says that by God's power, he guards it for you, for his own. But also, part of the spoil is that like the disciples who will sit on thrones, we as his disciples will sit on the throne with Christ because of our union with him, as we talked about earlier. Revelation 3.21 says, the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What an undeserving inheritance for us. We don't deserve to receive any of Christ's spoils. And honestly, it would, be, it would just be nice just to get in, <laughs> to get some of these other beautiful spoils, predestination, the Holy Spirit. But we get all things in Christ. Indeed, even the authority he has himself that he gives to us to share with him. That is the future of a disciple, friends. That is the disciple's destiny. And it's all about him. And he brings us with him still. Includes us with him. We marveling yet? Do you see Jesus? And I hope that this will just soften your heart. I hope that all this just softens your heart. And that's why we keep on hitting this point. That's why Jesus keeps on presenting the kingdom over and over again. That means it might have the effect on your callous heart that you might marvel at him and be amazed at him, to see him as glorious. And sometimes I feel dead to this. Sometimes I feel like I'm just like a rock-hard heart, calloused over. And shame on us if we never get to the point, or if we ever get to the point, for that matter, where we hear the word and we just never have a marveling. For those who have marveled at Christ at the point of their conversion, for him to be amazed at his beauty at the point of their salvation, to just treat him like he's just a man every single other time. But he is God himself. He is God the Son, and he came in human flesh to save sinners like you and me who don't deserve it. Why? Because of marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Unexplainable love. So ask him, that one who rules over your heart, to remove the callousness from your heart so that you might be able to behold him even today. That you might grow in your Christ-likeness, that your faith might be strengthened to see him 
as he is. And finally, we have the judgment of the wicked. Jesus says the final effect of his kingdom that is coming is terrible, terrible judgment. He says in verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And I don't want you to miss what he's doing here. He's very specific with his wording. Sure, we can understand this kind of you know, in a cursory way that those who aren't, against, who, are, who aren't with him, obviously they're against him. There's no middle ground with Christ. But what it means to be against him is highlighted by the word scatter. Scatter. If you do a little bit of a word search in your Bibles for the word scatter and its various uses, the abundant use of scatter is in the Old Testament. And it's almost always used in judgment, in talking about judgment. Whether it's Israel, or whether it's a nation like Egypt, or the Edomites, it's usually, almost always, used as judgment. And Psalm 68.1 is a great example of this. It says, God will arise, his enemies will be scattered, and those who hate him will flee from before him. So Jesus is pulling forward all this Old Testament language to not only further to, to define who he is, He's saying, yeah, I bring this judgment that the Old Testament says that Yahweh brings. He's identifying himself with Yahweh, that he is divine, that he is God himself in the person of the Son. But he's not only doing that, but he's putting an exclamation point on the punishment for those who do not believe in him, for those who do not gather with him, for those who are not his disciples, for those who do not marvel, for those who accuse him of being of the devil and you ask for more than just him and ask for a sign from him, the only thing awaiting for you is terrible, terrible judgment, he says. So for my unbelieving friend in the room, this verse is for you. Jesus is giving this warning to you. If you're a doubter today, if you really don't believe in him, I'm begging you, repent and believe the gospel, for this judgment is real. And friends, it's coming. Repent of your sin, turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of sins, for the imputation of righteousness, for right standing before God eternally, for the salvation of your souls, and you will be saved. He will save you by his grace. And you will one day reign with him. You'll be a partaker of all the kingdom of God and the inheritance that he has to offer that is being kept in heaven for you. You'll receive eternal life in the presence of God, our creator. But if you do not, you will receive judgment. So repent and believe the gospel today. For the rest of you, how fitting it is that we see this after last week in First Peter that You are to fear God and share the gospel with others and friends. And this is an aspect of our fear of the Lord. We understand that the coming judgment is very real. We understand that God is just and he is mighty and he is a wrathful God. So we have a certain understanding and reverent fear of God because of who he is and what he's going to do. And so friends, let this be a reminder, as we saw last week, to share the gospel with people, to understand that the reality of hell is is very real. It's very real. The judgment is coming. But tell them that the kingdom has come, that the good news of Jesus Christ is that the stronger man has beat the strong man, and that there's a way out, that there's salvation for those who believe in him. Let us tell this salvation 
to those who are lost. So in these verses, Jesus draws kind of a line in the sand. You either marvel or you doubt. You either think that I'm from God or you don't. Those who marvel receive the benefits of the kingdom and the effects. And those who don't receive the other effect, the judgment. Which side are you on? We also have reminders of what true discipleship is supposed to look like. Disciples praise God for his blessings. Live in freedom from sin and submission to Christ because you are a part of his kingdom. Honor him with your life and worship and obey the king. What parts of your life evidence that you are ruled by Christ? What parts of your life show that you seem to forget that fact? What parts of your life seem to evidence, I'm not ruled by Christ? Is there sin that you keep giving into? Is there sin that you're stuck in? Believer, Christ came and paid for that sin, and he bought the victory for you. He did the work to believe in him. That is the biggest news ever, that he is Lord and Master and King over your life. And you get to follow him now in joy. So that means you can literally stand amazed that Christ has made that possible. So disciples live like that. Live like you're actually amazed that he he did that, that he made it possible for you. And share the gospel. Part of being a disciple is sharing the gospel to the lost because of the impending judgment. So now that he has given three primary effects, he now gives two implications. The first one, involves this analogy of the cursed doubter. He continues his analogy on. And here's the first implication. Disciples are those in the kingdom, meaning their lives are in complete submission to Christ. Disciples are those in the kingdom, meaning their lives are in complete submission to Christ. So he continues his analogy, and... You can imagine he's probably using the man in front of him as, a, as the point of the analogy. He's saying, this man, for instance, I just cast a demon out of him. He has experienced the coming of the kingdom on his life, in some sense. Notice that this demon leaves, the verse says, and he comes back, and it says he found his house, or this man. This man is the house, the palace, the, the, uh, the house um, of this demon. And his house is swept and put in order. So this differs from the palace of Satan in verse 21 and 22, the palace of Satan that is completely destroyed and tore down and replaced with the kingdom of God. This is talking about this man's house, this man's heart, his own life. So there's a difference, he's telling us, between Christ conquering the kingdom of Satan in Christ's kingdom coming and ruling in each and every one of your lives. And it's telling us of the reality that there are still so many people who are still wrapped up in sin and are still being led into darkness and deceive. We, we know this to be true. There are still houses that are either completely empty and devoid of any clean, cleanliness or there are houses that are just put in order. But they are both spiritually blind and the unsaved. 
Notice that this man has experienced some of the power of the kingdom of God, and that he knows and he has heard the kingdom, how it comes to bear on people's lives and its power. He's heard about the power of this kingdom and about the person of Jesus Christ. And he might even be living a swept up and put together life. His house is all put in order. I think this is a metaphor for mere morality. Oh, I've heard the kingdom. I've, I've seen it in other people. I've seen its effects. I have heard the gospel myself many times. I might have even had a profession of faith once. But my life, my life cannot be described by anything else but maybe just swept and put together. I've never actually believed in Christ. These people are not disciples. Some people can get so close to God and the things of God and yet never truly believe, never bend the knee in faith in Jesus Christ, never submit their lives completely to the lordship of Christ. And he says, Jesus Christ says, their state of deception, their state of devastation is like if the perfect storm, seven demons, the perfect storm of demons entered a person. Their state is worse than if they just would have never heard about Christ to begin with. Jesus is saying it's perhaps the greatest tragedy, in fact it is, the greatest tragedy on earth for someone to repeatedly hear the gospel and to even be deceived into thinking they're saved and then when they come to the judgment be told, depart from me, I never knew you. They might as well have seven demons in them. That's how terrible their state is. They're going to wish they were just never heard in the first place. To never live under the deception that they were partakers of the kingdom just because they had heard it before. Or just because their lives were swept up and put in order. How many times do we hear that today? Well, why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I've been to church a couple times. I go on church on Christmas and Easter. I prayed a prayer once. Brothers and sisters, fellow disciples, this is for us. Jesus saying, I've drawn the lines. The kingdom has come. There are those who marvel and there are those who will be scattered. There are disciples and there are doubters. And he's saying, you can only be on one side of the line. There is no double-sidedness. You can't be in the middle. You can't serve one kingdom or the other. Just because you've heard this news does not mean that you are saved from wrath. And friends, may we be fervent after hearing this. May we be fervent that we are on the side of the kingdom. May we be fervent in marveling at Christ each day. May we be fervent, as we talked about with Mary and Martha, to choose the good portion each day and sit at the feet of Christ in his word. May we be fervent, as we talked about last time, to pray boldly and expectantly and commune with our Father in prayer so that we might not fall away. Lest we be like the people in Hebrews 6, 4 through, 4 through 7 is described as. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. So those who are, they're living as if they've done all these things. They're living as if they're so close and so near and dear. They could even sit in one of these pews every single week. But then they fall away. They show themselves to be not true believers. He says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm 
and holding him up to contempt. Let us be careful. Let us we be like one of these. Let us we be so lukewarm in our morality. Let us we be so passive in our lives and really self-absorbed and sucked in by sin. Because as Ephesians 2 says, if we're living like that, if we're going after the desires of our flesh, we're children of wrath. It's as if we are already experiencing the passive judgment of God before it actually comes. As Tim Keller says in his book, Reason for God, he says, Hell, then, is the trajectory of the soul, living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, going on and on forever. Therefore, those who reject Christ are living under severe wrath already. They are children of wrath. Let us watch ourselves that we are not just houses swept out and cleaned up, but that we are disciples that have been completely ruled and destroyed and rebuilt in the kingdom of Christ. That is his first implication. Second implication, he shows it through this blessed disciple. Being in the kingdom of God has never been about lineage. It's always been about obedient faith. Being in the kingdom of God has never been about lineage. It's always been about obedient faith. <clears throat> so we have this final implication. It's really a clarification that is need, has needed to be said. After he says, there's no middleman, there's no one way or the other, there's no wishy-washy morality in the kingdom he clarifies once for all, this is who has always been the kingdom of God. This woman speaks up and he cuts Jesus off in the middle of his analogy and says, oh, but actually, blessed are those who, blessed is the one who bore you in the breast at which you nurse. And this is a maxim. She's not saying Mary. She's not saying your mother, Jesus, in your womb, your, your mother's womb. It's a, it's a general phrase like a, a saying that might have been popular at the time. Blessed is the womb that bore you, the one who is blessed, the one who is a true marveler, the one who is a true one who lives in wonder and joy and amazement and eternal happiness in God is one that who has been born of a certain lineage, namely, unsurprisingly, as we saw earlier, Israelites. That's the belief of this woman. Oh, blessed are, are, are Israelites, for they are partakers of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, rather, no. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's saying, it has always been, and it will always be, that those who are my people are those who have been saved by grace, who hear the word of God and are faithful in keeping it. That is why in 1 Corinthians 10, we see that the Israelites were so close to the rock and they drank from the spiritual rock with his Christ in the wilderness. And it says, but they were given over to their own sins and their own passions and they fell and they were judged. Those people weren't part of the kingdom of God that were judged. God doesn't just excuse sin because you were born in a certain lineage or an ethnicity. No, he says it is always and it will always be those who hear the word of God and those who keep it. But notice how he connects it with what we saw in the beginning. The blessed life, true blessedness that will last forever, 
the life that will always feed joy and happiness in God in your heart, the one that is characterized by a, a, a heart that is amazed at God, the people that marvel are those who always go every day, all the time, back to the word of God, and they look into the perfect law, as James says, and they're not just hearers, but they're doers, and they persevere. They hear the word of God, and they keep it. That is the mark of a true disciple. That is what a member of the kingdom looks like. It's a life that has been changed by the kingdom, and who joyfully and who gladly goes to the word and hears it and keeps it, and then does something and obeys and lives in obedient faith. That's the life of a disciple, friends. Let's be marvelers in the word and to hear it and to love it and then to obey. Live in submission to Christ. If you are a believer in Christ and you're saying, I haven't been living as, as if Christ has really defeated Satan. I realize that today. I've been living as if Satan and Christ are equals and they're having a war in my heart. I'm not living as if Christ's kingdom has truly conquered my life, has truly conquered my life. I'm not living as, as if Christ is truly marvelous. I feel callous to all that. I would encourage you, you who have at least once marveled at Christ's person and work at your conversion, go back to what we've talked about today. Jesus comes and gives this kingdom message because the response is supposed to happen. Go back and, and, and look at the kingdom and look what these people saw when they marveled. See the person, the work of Christ and how he's revealed himself in the word and marvel at him. If you're not marveling, have you been in the word recently? Have you been praying? Have you been in church recently? Have you heard the word? Have you sought it like silver? Have you sought it like sweet honey? Go back and ponder and muse on the work of Christ on the cross as he brought the kingdom to earth and he defeated Satan. Go behold the man upon the cross. Ask the Lord to soften your calloused heart. Disciples, ultimately, the kingdom has come, and it's coming in fullness one day soon. Jesus is Lord over every aspect of your life. Live in submission to him. Live in wonder of him. Live in faithfulness to him. Live in marveling and in wonder of him. Live in the fear of him, for he is the God of the universe who is bringing judgment. Live a life in fervent, obedient faith in him. Be a disciple whose heart is ruled by the Lord of lords, because that is what true discipleship is, friends. And as we saw today, the kingdom of God brings wonder and faithfulness and blessedness to disciples, but brings present and future judgment on doubters. Are you a disciple are you a doubter? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the cross, for what it has won for us, for those who believe, for those who hear the word of God and keep it. Father, I pray that you would help each of us here today to not just see you in your word, but to, to be amazed, but to marvel. And Lord, let that fuel our obedience and our faith. Help us to live lives of faithful disciples in submission to Christ our Lord. We love you.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.